0: This week
1: on life and faith. If our institutions are all tarnished, we either need redemption for the institutions or we need replacement or we need revolution. So replacement, revolution, or redemption. And redemption's the easiest, hopefully, because it means acknowledgement of wrongdoing and appeals for forgiveness and efforts to commit to a better trajectory. But we lack the vocabulary for that in secular society.
0: If we're doing work right, it's a part of life.
1: We certainly knew that it was going to lead to war. There's an opportunity to reconnect with spirituality through parenthood.
0: I don't think that there's that many true atheists out there, really. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Justine Toe. Who or
0: what? do you trust? Well, maybe a better question is, do you automatically distrust everything and everyone? Well, apparently, distrust is now our default emotion. Government, media, corporations, we don't trust a lot of them. Now, there might have been a brief blip during the pandemic when trust in government, for one, rose across the world as people looked to political leaders to steer countries through COVID, But even that seems to have gone.
2: Yeah. Well, today on Life and Faith, we're asking where does this chronic distrust come from and what does it mean for us today? Well, in the second half of this episode, we get into that second question, what it means for us today, courtesy of an interview I did with Stephen Hawkins. He's the Global Director of Research at More in Common, which is an organisation that researches drivers of polarisation as well as political division. But right now, we're going to dip into an episode of history that starts to explain why chronic distrust is so widespread today. The Watergate scandal.
0: Yes, now this week marks 50 years since the Watergate scandal, an event that has left ripples throughout the world and our culture to the point that every second scandal or cover-up or controversy is now given that suffix, gate. We all hear this all the time, Justin.
2: Yeah, there's a couple. There's some that aren't um, good for family friendly listening, so I won't go into them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's things like Camilla Gate. The British tabloids published all these transcripts of intimate phone chats between Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles. I love that it was named after her, not him, <laughs> by there. the way. Um, and Australia's had its own Watergate issue as well. Uh, concerning Literally water? Yeah, that's right. Concerning a water buyback scandal to the tune of some $80 million that might have been mismanaged. Yeah, you know.
0: so there's gates everywhere. But the Watergate scandal also lives on in popular culture. There's Gaslit, which is currently on stand. Now, we've just started watching this, by the way. That tells the story of Watergate from the perspective of Martha Mitchell, as played by Julia Roberts. Now, Mitchell was the outspoken and... Honestly, larger than life, wife of Nixon's Attorney General John Mitchell, who in this series is played by Sean Penn.
2: Yes, and in the latest season of Stranger Things, there's another Watergate reference too, but it's a little bit more literal this time. I don't want to spoil it for people. It's a great show. Anyway, I didn't know much about Watergate apart from, you know, some few of the
0: basic vague references,
2: yep. yeah. So we got the newest member of the CPX team to read a giant book about it and distill it for us. So thank you, Matt Fitzgerald what a great baptism of fire into the CPX team. That book was Watergate, A New History by Garrett M. Graff. So I started by asking Matt, did he know anything about Watergate before picking up this book?
3: No, I did not. The small bit that i did know came from a popular film called point break
2: ah uh, yes one of my classics as well what was the <laughs> reference in point break remind us
3: it was the scene where they're robbing the bank and one of the guys is wearing <laughs> a nixon mask he puts his arms up and then makes the fa- says the famous phrase i am not a crook
0: little hand says it's time to rock and roll
2: everybody
1: Open your eyes down! Hello, 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 ladies on, and gentlemen. We there. are the ex-presidents, and we need just a few moments of your time. How you doing, Dick? Just implementing our own personal plan of deregulation, Mr. President. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and please don't forget to vote! I'm not a crook! <laughs>
2: That was probably one of my earliest references to Watergate as well. And then I remember All the President's Men, because I wanted to be a journalist a long time ago. And I believe this was the movie that raised the profile of journalism. Like, it really was a speak truth to power. um, And look, it can bring down a government. But yeah, before we get ahead of ourselves, I wonder if you can take us through the main beats of the historical event that we now call Watergate.
3: I think there's three things that we could give attention to. Firstly, the Watergate break-in, secondly, the Pentagon Papers, and then thirdly, the legal charges that resulted from the initial break-in. So I guess the first one is the break-in at the Democratic National Convention headquarters at the Watergate building on the 17th of June, 1972. So you have a Cuban team of burglars that were oversaw by Gordon Liddy and a guy called Hunt. And they orchestrate this entire process to break in to try to get dirt information and then also to bug the DNC headquarters. But they're unsuccessful. They're caught by a lowly security guard. And we also know that Watergate's not just a bugging operation or a burglary at the DNC, but it's a whole umbrella of other events that are distinct, but also scandals in and of themselves.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in that because Graff says that Watergate represents less an event, like a single event, than a way of life for the Nixon administration. So what everyone's dirty, sounds like. Is that what he's getting at?
3: Yeah, he's incredibly thorough going on the range of events that the whole Watergate thing kind of sparks. There's the Chanute affair, the Houston plan, the Kissinger wiretaps, the illegal bombing in Cambodia, the Pentagon papers, the ITT. There is just so many things. So in that one phrase, uh, that is perfectly summarises exactly what's taking place.
2: Mm, We'll get to some of those in a moment. But this Watergate scandal brings down President Nixon. He resigns. Indeed. Can you kind of join some dots for us? Like, give us a sense first of who is Nixon and what does he represent to the American public at this time?
3: Well, when Nixon comes into power, he comes into power in a landslide victory. I still think it might be the greatest Republican victory of all time. Wow. So he comes into power quite quickly. He winds down the Vietnam War. He instrumentalizes environmental policy, protection agencies. He's an advocate for universal basic income to some extent, though it's not instituted in the long run. He's an equal opportunity advocate. He ends the national draft. And he also, most importantly, kind of quells the communism and the whole storm between East and West. So he's the first president to go to Moscow and also to go to Peking in China and reinstall diplomatic relations. So his initial kind of move into power is quite successful. And on top of that, Time magazine brandish Nixon on the front cover of their page a total of 55 times. That's basically more than a year's worth of Time magazines with Nixon's face across the front of them. That
2: is incredible when you describe it like that. So he's someone Mm. who is, I guess, a true American hero in that sense, (laughs) and he resigns as a result of Watergate. What's going on there?
3: Well, his famous last words we've already quoted, which is, I am not a crook. And when that took place, this is when the roof is basically collapsing in on his presidency. And he's in front of a press conference with 400 plus editors and writers and journals in front of him. And he says, this, this is the direct quote. Let me just say this. I made my mistakes, but in all my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I am not a crook. I have earned everything I have got. And at this stage, the Watergate investigation is taking place alongside a corresponding tax evasion case taking place against him as well. And so the process of his sort of slow decline is like a death by a thousand cuts. There are just so many different investigations that are big and small and so many different moving parts basically treated the American people with such disdain.
2: When we think of Watergate, are we talking a kind of wide-ranging conspiracy that was carefully planned and executed? I think this is an important point because you do say it's like a way of life. It represents this chronic wrongdoing, but is that the same as a conspiracy?
3: No, the short answer is no. There is no widespread cover-up or institutional failure within the Republican Party. The puppet master doesn't exist, as it were, right? There's no one, there's no Geppetto pulling the strings here. (laughs) What we tend to see instead is individuals having individual motivations to certain ends or taking orders from middle management lower individuals to their own individual ends as well. It seems to be broken and piecemeal, um, though we see some significant failures within the government, there is no overall significant conspiracy theory that binds it all together. One single narrative, that sort of one ring to rule the world all type of idea.
2: Okay, well, tell me about the Pentagon Papers. They were leaked during the Nixon administration and what did they have yeah. to reveal about the Vietnam War?
3: So the Pentagon Papers and the leak... Don't mention Nixon once. There's over a million words, I think, from memory in the entire Pentagon Papers, and there's not a single mention of Nixon's name anywhere. So I think in many ways, he himself likely felt vindicated by that. But the Pentagon Papers themselves were a classified leak of documents that were originally commissioned by President Kennedy and his defence secretary, a guy called Robert McNamara. And these basically detail how the US got embroiled in the war in Vietnam and its wider involvement in Southeast Asia, which leads obviously to the deaths of many young American, particularly men, but also um, the deception of American people under presidents from Truman all the way down to Johnson. So it lasts a long, long period of time. So I guess that's the big second event in the whole Watergate saga. It's not just the breaking, but it's also the leak of the Pentagon Papers themselves.
2: And that would contribute to this sense that the government is lying to you. Indeed. Mm. So let's now turn to some of the ramifications of Watergate. What kind of ripples has it left socially, politically or culturally? How can we see the effects of Watergate?
3: Indeed. And, And they're really huge and really widespread. For example, there's a guy called Donald Sanders and he was one of the Senate investigators Into the whole Watergate saga. And he says retrospectively that during Nixon's first term as president, there was kind of like an aura around him, his presidency. There was a real infallibility, but also an inaccessibility to the White House. He says that the balloon was yet to be punctured. But after the events of Watergate and then the following up and the whole investigation process, The politics and institutional form of Power Washington significantly changed. And it probably happened from 1974 on. And this leads to a conversation about a group of people called the Watergate Babies, like a new generation of parliamentarians, politicians who come into power, and their energy basically transforms the Senate and the House. It brings a sea change and kind of upends institutions, it democratises power, committee chairs, it ushers in a larger degree of transparency and what we could call watchdog journalism. I guess in a word, we could say before Watergate, the press was on side with the Hill and Washington politicians. After Watergate and the following investigations, they are adversarial toward them.
2: Yeah, so there's this real sense of speaking truth to power, But let me ask you as well, is trust the casualty of all of this? Because Gerald Ford, who was inaugurated after Nixon resigned, said, I believe that truth is the glue that holds government together, not only our own government, but civilization itself. That bond, though strained, is unbroken at home and abroad. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Is it actually over, Matt? Because I feel like we're living in this climate of distrust. And maybe Watergate was one of those early instances of where the sheen came off the government in a big way.
3: Absolutely. We often think, and this is a direct quote from Graff's book, of Watergate as a Nixon story, but I think it's probably better understood as a Washington story. Watergate is ultimately about power. Now, this sounds very Machiavellian, I guess, you know, Harry Potter-esque. There is no good, there is no evil, it's just power. But Watergate itself seems to be a a narrative to some extent of power, the hunger for it, how to protect it, how to challenge it, how it flows, how it moves through Washington itself. Jack Anderson becomes quite a famed columnist. And he's kind of known as the father of investigative journalism. And he wrote in 1973, in the midst of the Watergate affair, that power is Washington's main marketable product. Power is the driving force that brings together people of different philosophies and varying interests in the constantly evolving battle for control. So after Nixon left the office, Published findings of over 500 pages concluded that there were 36 instances of obstructions of justice within his presidency. And so the implications initially, I think, go to a conversation around the press, around journalism, around free thought, around governmental criticism that happens in a post Watergate generation. And I think in many ways it's a high watermark. The whole Watergate affair is a high watermark for the West in some way, where before Watergate, there was a general confluence between the press and the political class in Washington. They were kind of chummy with each other. After Watergate, they become far more adversarial toward each other, and the press becomes far more invested in investigative journalism and becoming more circumspect of those in power.
0: You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and we're talking about distrust which is endemic in societies across the West. That's according to studies like the Edelman Trust Barometer which has been conducted across 20-something countries for the last 22 years and also research produced by More in Common, an organisation that's researching political division and drivers of polarisation. More in Common was, of course, founded by Tim Dixon, who regular listeners will remember because we've had him on the podcast recently. Now, this time around, we rope in one of his colleagues, Stephen Hawkins, who is the global director of research from More in Common. Justine asked him, is distrust the default starting point for people these days?
1: I think that's right. We do research in the United States, in Poland, UK, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, And in all of those countries, we found that the majority position is one of distrust in major institutions. For instance, in the United States, we find that neither big business nor media nor the national government enjoys more than 25% trust on average. And we found that across Europe, there's no single country that enjoys a majority of confidence in terms of trust in their head of state or in their national government. So distrust is the default position towards government. And we also find that on major questions such as on whether the truth is being told about COVID, we find that almost half of Europeans say, we think that the truth is being hidden from us rather than that the truth is being told. So we are in a moment, a very long chapter indeed of distrust in the West.
2: I will ask you shortly about what has led to this rise of distrust. But can we just get a snapshot maybe about what that lack of trust means on the ground in terms of how people go about their daily lives?
1: Well, in the space of information, I think that's where it's very interesting because People have a need to construct a reality in which they operate and to tell a story about what they do and about what's happening in the world and how they ought to raise their family and so on. And so in the absence of trust in the media or absence of trust in government, people do turn to other sources of information, whether it's via social media or from their family network and friends. And so in the way that we're relating to each other, there's this process of people reorienting who they trust and deciding based on instinct and evidence and other processes who they should trust instead of hierarchical traditional institutions. Another way in which it matters is I think there is a climate, certainly in the United States it's the case, that people feel a kind of surveillance of their conversation and their opinions. There's a strong sense that you can get in trouble easily for misstepping in the way that you speak. We found even going back four years ago that 80% of Americans believe that political correctness is a problem. Um, This is the precursor to what's now called cancel culture. And so one of the symptoms of distrust is that people feel a sense of self-censorship or the need to be very conscious of what they say and who they say it around, lest they get in trouble from some authority figure that could then fire them or get them in trouble on social media.
2: Okay, so what about how people perceive the government and other institutions? He was saying that there's a fair chunk of Europeans who distrust that they're getting the full information on COVID, for example.
1: Yes. And that extends to how they see the media informing them about COVID. But asked about national government, trust is much lower than it is than in local governments, for instance. And this is something we see in Europe and in the United States is that whether it's local media or local government, people tend to trust institutions that are smaller and closer to them rather than bigger and farther away. And we see that the distrust in government is a challenge, especially when there is a need for collective action, because government is the institution that we have developed as a society to coordinate big actors and do major initiatives that affect the entire population. It's the only mechanism we really have for that. And so when you have a moment of crisis or a big national challenge, such as we're facing in the United States with addressing gun violence, or such as we've faced in recent years with the pandemic, the inability to trust Uh, implicitly, the government, to be honest and effective, is one that then leads to resistance, opposition, suspicion, and an oppositional movement that needn't be the case for something which could be collectively resolved through a government, ideally.
2: Earlier on, Stephen said people tend to trust institutions that are smaller and closer to them rather than bigger and further away. Remember that point, we come back to it later. But how did we get to a place of chronic distrust? That's where the conversation goes next.
1: I would say there are four threads to what's driving the distrust. One is a history of abuse or mistreatment with the government, for instance, with Watergate or the mishandling of Vietnam War in the middle of the 20th century, late 60s, early 70s. That was when we started to see distrust start to grow. Whereas in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, we would see 75, 80% of Americans say that they trust the government to do what's right most of the time. That number has now fallen to around 20%. So there are these moments. Watergate would be one for my generation, the misleading of the public around the invasion of Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. But it's not just something which happens on the right, on the left side of the aisle among Democrats. I think there was distrust that got frequently raised around In the United States, we had a major initiative to change our healthcare system. And one of the key promises there was that people would be allowed to keep their personal doctors under the new regime. Uh, That promise wasn't kept. Another more recent misstep by government in the U.S. was hypocrisy around the enforcement of masks, where face masks were required during COVID. Large gatherings weren't allowed. And then when there were massive racial justice protests, which happened in the wake of the George Floyd murder, the mask mandate was suspended effectively, which led to a contradiction that really this was the political ends were being served. So those sorts of moments certainly serve to provide a foundation for people's narrative of distrust of big government. But I think there are three other threads which I can touch on. One would be an ideology of distrust, which is something which is actively advanced by political Groups In the United States, it would be by conservative and Republican Party officials, where having distrust of government is part of their political thinking, part of their political calculus. Um, Certainly something which Donald Trump appealed to in distrusting the national security apparatus, the FBI and other federal entities. I would say beyond moments in ideology, there's also a set of norms which have helped to erode trust in our government. And here what I'm talking about especially is the rise of professional communications experts and consultants that help politicians to sound manicured and perfect in the way that they present themselves in every situation leads to a decline in confidence that people are being authentic and that elected officials are actually saying what they believe. And instead you have this kind of curated false image, which feels empty. And this is one of the things which I think has driven the decline in trust And then finally, I would say that one of the major drivers is market forces where the news media industry has completely changed, both because of the rise of social media and because of the diffusion of news media from a few major entities into many, many targeted niche market news media, which serve to reinforce existing beliefs rather than challenge their audience with facts that might confront their pre-held views. So those are the four big factors I would point to in terms of distrust, big moments, ideology, changing of norms, and uh, market incentives.
2: Okay, so tell me how polarization plays into this, because if we only want to associate with people with whom we feel a sense of familiarity and trust, then... Probably that's not going to happen if people have different ideologies from you or wholly different backgrounds from you as well.
1: Uh, One of the things that the lack of mixing across political lines causes is what academics refer to as false polarization, which is that not only do you disagree with somebody, but you overestimate the degree to which you disagree with the other side. You overestimate how different they are. We did a study about this called the perception gap three years ago. Which looked at this and it found that the most politically engaged people on both sides of the aisle did the worst job of predicting what their political opponents thought. And the people who are actually politically disengaged who might mingle with Republicans and Democrats in their jobs and in their neighborhoods, they actually had a pretty good read on how extreme the average Republican or Democrat is. And so together with the overestimation of how different your political opponent is, comes a character judgment. And so we also found that the people who are most politically engaged were the most likely to refer to the other side as brainwashed, or as hateful, or as racist. And so you see that there is a degree to which misperception, due to the lack of intermingling, drives forward the hostility and drives forward the sense of threat from the other side. So there are differences that really matter and that need to be worked out. But on top of them, there's this amplifying effect of our inability to spend time with each other in a meaningful way, to disabuse ourselves of some of our fears and exaggerations, which we tend to get from our social media environments and from our media.
2: From More in Commons work, are there any comments to make about how the church as an institution fares in the trust stakes?
1: The way in which I think we have found the relevance of church in the United States is in our measurement of the decline of participation in community organizations. This is a general phenomenon in the United States. It's been written about since the 1990s. But since the middle of the 20th century, moving forward over the last 70 years, you see a really steep decline in participation in local bowling clubs, in neighborhood associations, in local churches. And these forms of activity, religious or not, served as a way of people mixing with people across generations of different genders and races and so on, and allowed for that kind of natural bonding to happen at a societal level and for people to not feel isolated. In the United States and in the West, we see a lot of isolation. We see the rise of concern from governments about depression and loneliness as a major concern. And there are some in the United States that argue that the underlying fundamental problem of polarization, Is that people are seeking politics as a venue to find belonging because they don't have one in their lives in another forum and the church could serve as that forum for people to find a place of belonging of affirmation of commonality of moral purpose and instead they're finding their home for all of those things community affirmation validation Even epistemology, what is true, what to believe, they're finding that in social media through their progressive group or through their conservative group, and that's their tribe, and they have an out group and so on. And so the role of church could be to serve as an alternative to politics for those purposes, and also as a venue for people of different political beliefs to meet and to counteract these problems of false polarization that we just spoke about.
0: As you're hearing, Stephen can see a lot of opportunities for the local church to play a role in addressing polarization. Now remember how he said earlier that people tend to trust institutions that are smaller and closer to them rather than bigger and further away. So there's a role here for local communities, including the church.
2: Yeah, um, but Stephen also went on to say that, in the United States at least, there's this perception of a very strong, almost unbreakable, some might say, link between evangelical Christianity and Trumpism or the Republican Party. And that seems to be turning off a lot of the younger generations who are less and less involved with church. But on the question of trust in the church as an institution – There's also no getting around the grave failures of the church, especially when dealing with the child sexual abuse scandals.
1: Well, I think the theme here is hypocrisy. And we know from the lens of psychology how powerful hypocrisy is as a violator of trust in terms of its effect on undermining uh, people's confidence in the leadership of the organisation or the individual. In the UK, there have been various scandals, At the time of this recording, Prime Minister Johnson's just survived uh, a no-confidence vote related to his hypocrisy in not isolating and quarantining uh, during COVID in the way that was mandated to the public. I think it's a much more serious crime to violate the trust of the children under your care in a Christian environment. But it's the same moral infraction of setting yourself up as a moral authority and providing moral leadership and having authority over the lives of the people in your community, and then violating that trust in your own conduct. And I think that form of hypocrisy is is very damaging and has parallels across institutions, whether it's in the media, politics, or in religion. And I think this is where secular society really falls short in addressing the problem, because whereas Christianity has a concept of forgiveness and redemption, Secular society, broadly speaking, doesn't have any formal institution for this other than the punitive legal system. In our culture, when people break your trust, we don't have rituals around asking for forgiveness. And I think that's where there's also a need, right? If our institutions are all tarnished, we either need redemption for the institutions or we need replacement, or we need revolution. So replacement, revolution, or redemption. And redemption is the easiest, hopefully, because it means acknowledgement of wrongdoing and appeals for forgiveness and efforts to commit to a better trajectory. But we lack the vocabulary for that in secular society. We don't know quite how to deal with admissions of guilt and how to ask for forgiveness and how to give it. I think we've lost that skill. And I think maybe Christianity has something to offer specifically on that point.
2: Mm, yes, I think what you're saying is very true of cancel culture. We just want to cancel people. We don't want to do anything else. Right. Um, I know that more in common is not simply interested in diagnosing the problems that we might be facing as a society. You're also interested in providing solutions. So are there any pointers that you can give us as how to rebuild a sense of social trust within and across communities, different political groups, et cetera, What's the way forward if we want to plot a path out of this distrust?
1: The answers are actually relatively easy in terms of implementing them on a small scale. The challenge is how to do it across a whole society. Research that's been done by organizations with more funding and more academic backing has found that if you bring people together over a two or three day period and you allow them to interact across the full diversity of the group. You'll show a decline in what's called affective polarization by the end of the weekend, which is really remarkable, meaning people come in and they say, I have a 15 out of 100 warmth towards people who are Democrats. By the end of the weekend, that number might be up above 50. And you see that people feel warmer and closer to each other. And on the substantive points of what ideas they support and how they think about politics, you also see more convergence. So it's frustrating because the the sort of cure antidote is known, but the execution of a plan that would allow all of Australia to benefit from it isn't forthcoming because it's just such a challenging thing to execute. And it would need to be periodic, not once in its execution. But that's also where I think there's a role for Christianity and churches who are natural conveners that have physical places of convening where they can host meals, where they can engage with communities, where they can bring together families or parents or schools or what have you, and allow for that interaction across groups. That's what we can be doing. And we can be doing it at a local level. And we can be building up confidence, not in the national institutions, but in each other and in our local level through those sorts of interventions that don't need to be complicated by lots of procedure it's this quality time together has inherent value and it has a mitigating effect against distrust. And so that's why the church is a really valuable institution. Independently of theology, convening organizations have a really crucial moment to play in these challenges. For pastors or church leaders, the appeal that I would make and that I think comes from more in Commons evidence base is serve as places of convening, serve as places of a collective setting for people to deal with pain of national trauma, for people to meet others with whom they might not have conversations with of any substance or length, and to see themselves as a resource for creating connections within communities.
0: So there you are, perhaps surprisingly, we land our discussion of distrust in a call for local communities, including faith communities to do what they can to foster trust between people. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe.
2: Yes, and thank you to Stephen Hawkins from More in Common and also to Matt Fitzgerald for wading through that giant tome that Garrett M. Graff wrote about Watergate. I'll post some links to Graff's book, Watergate, A New History, as well as More in Common's work on the issue of trust.
0: Now, everything we do at CPX is funded by support from our donors and we really need this to do the work we do If you're enjoying life and faith or anything else we do, then as we approach the end of the financial year, please consider supporting us with a one-off donation or regular monthly giving. Go to publicchristianity.org to donate. Every bit helps, and we can't do it without you.
1: Next week. Even though my parents themselves were not believers, this was just part of being a civilized person in the Midwest. And in my case, it was not such an unpleasant experience that I had to reject it. I just quietly internalized it.